Father, thank you for sending the one, the only one who is worthy. Thank you for the humility of Jesus, leaving the glories of heaven, the constant worship of the angels, to be born and placed in a feeding trough. It was a picture of what was to come when he would hang on a cross. Jesus is worthy. And may we demonstrate that now in how we hear your word and how we respond to your word and how we leave this place this morning rejoicing over the salvation that is ours forever. So help us now, I pray, to see Jesus in all of his grace and in all of his glory. In his name, amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Thank you, team, for leading us this morning. I cannot sing that song without weeping. And so uh, I'm a little emotional this morning. And I would invite you to open your copies of the Scriptures to Matthew chapter 2. Matthew chapter 2 this morning. If you don't have a Bible with you, that's okay. And we've already been, I've already knocked the guitar down. So um, as a guitar player, at least in the old days, let me pick this back up. So I want to begin this morning with a question. So Matthew chapter 2, first book of the New Testament. If you don't have a Bible with you this morning, you'll find one in the hymnal rack of the pew in front of you. I want to begin with a question because as a preacher's kid growing up, to be totally honest, I did not like when Christmas fell on a Sunday. Do you know why? Because we could never open Christmas presents until after Dad was done preaching. And it always seemed as though he preached extra long sermons on Christmas Day. And so I want to continue his tradition. I'm kidding, I'm kidding. In reality. So let me ask, how many of you this morning have already opened your Christmas presents? All right, so adults and children. Everybody raise your hands. If you've already opened your Christmas presents, raise your hands. Raise them high. Don't be ashamed. I'm not going to pick on you. All right, how many of you have, have done the godly thing? I, I'm kidding. How many of you are waiting until after this service has concluded to open your Christmas presents? All right, good. And my family is all raising their hand. They're not happy about it, but they're raising their hand. We give gifts at Christmas, at least in part, because that is the natural, normal human response to the Messiah, the promised one, arriving on earth. And we see that in the story of the wise men whose story is all about joy. Uncontainable, inexpressible joy that explodes in this extravagant giving of gold and frankincense and myrrh. So let's read their story. Let's see their joy so that we can learn to, to express their joy. 
Beginning in Matthew chapter 2 and verse 1. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and we have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And they told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. And then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. And then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, the wise men departed to their own country by another way. As the Christmas song says, and by the way, if you are one of my children, you know that if you're in the car with me, beginning August 31st, you begin listening to Christmas music. Now, some of you, some of you may not like that, but that's okay. Let me ask you, is there anything more we should celebrate all year long than the birth of Christ? You're like, yeah, but you don't have to listen to Christmas music to do that. Okay, I get it. Now, you sound like my kids. But as the Christmas song says, Christmas time is here. And one thing many of us share in at Christmas is hearing the Christmas story in the Gospels of Matthew and Luke. And not just here in church, but from Linus in A Charlie Brown Christmas. And from Pa Ingalls in Little House on the Prairie. And all the while we can become so familiar with the incarnation that we actually end up domesticating it. Christmas is familiar, but it is not tame. The Bible tells us that something cataclysmic was happening that first Christmas. This was the cradle that rocked the world. As Mary gave birth, an evil stirred that was so great, so devilish, that it called out for the blood of Bethlehem's infant sons, which Jesus escaped when an angel warned Joseph that death was coming. You see, Christmas is violent. It's earth-shattering. The way the world worked was being rewritten. It's like what happened in 1811 when an earthquake in Missouri caused church bells to ring in Philadelphia and made the Mississippi River change its course. As one author says, when Jesus gasped his first breath, the hinge of history swung in a new direction and hell shuddered. God's assault on the gates of hell itself had entered a new phase. That cosmic assault would culminate in a final act of violence against Jesus. 
on a cross with nails and a crown of thorns. Opening wounds from which blood would flow for the forgiveness of our sins. You see, the birth of Jesus guaranteed the death of Jesus. And yet that first Christmas night, heaven could not contain its joy. And so in Luke chapter 2, verses 10 and 11, an angel appears to a group of shepherds outside of Bethlehem and says to them, I bring you good news of great joy. That will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. It was the best of news accompanied by the greatest joy. The kind of joy that outlasts the pain and sorrow of the suffering that's coming for Jesus. Because in the birth of Jesus, God overwhelms this world's darkness with his light. Death with his life violence with his peace and that's why the story of Christmas is and forever will be not just a story of joy but the story of joy and so the big idea today from Matthew chapter 2 is this Jesus is joy and so to know Jesus is to know joy now when we talk about joy I think it would be helpful for us to take a moment to define it because we tend to equate joy with happiness. Like when we get to see our boyfriend or girlfriend over Christmas break or when we're, this one's personal for me, when we're told that there's whipped cream to top off that piece of warm pumpkin pie. But the joy of Jesus is better than that and stronger than that. And deeper than that. And longer lasting than that. Joy isn't a fleeting emotion. It's a permanent possession. And that's why John Piper has defined joy as a deep, durable delight in God that cannot be extinguished by anything. Think of it this way. Joy is an unshakable, unbreakable, unstoppable gladness in God. That's the story of a group of wise men who come to worship Jesus. And interestingly, their story actually begins by introducing us to a guy named Herod. Now, there are several Herods in the Bible, but this Herod is known as Herod the Great. When we meet him here, he's actually in the last few years of his reign as king over Israel, but he's He's not a full-blooded Jew. In fact, he's part Edomite. And so the Jews then are always wary of Herod, and he knows that, which is why he's psychotically paranoid. When he thinks his wife is conspiring against him, he has her killed, and then her mother and brother too. A few years later, he does the same with all three of his own sons. And so we shouldn't be surprised that he's more than willing to slaughter all the baby boys in Bethlehem just to protect his position. After all, the Senate in Rome had referred to Herod as king of the Jews for 40 years. But while Herod is terrorizing Israel as king, The true king, 
The Prince of Peace is born just a few miles southwest of Jerusalem in Bethlehem. And although Herod and Israel are oblivious to the birth of Jesus, Isaiah 60 verse 3 promises that nations will come to this king's light and kings to the brightness of his rising. So Herod shouldn't be surprised when foreign wise men arrive in Jerusalem looking for the one who's been born king of the Jews. But Herod is surprised, and we probably are too, because Matthew is actually writing his gospel to a Jewish audience. And yet in his gospel, take note here that the first Jesus worshipers are a group of Gentile wise men from the east. So let me ask. How far east are they from? Well, we don't know. Personally, personally, I'd like to think that these wise men are from Babylon because several centuries earlier, you'll remember, that's where many of the children of Israel were sent into exile. And we know that from the Old Testament book of Daniel that some of the greatest men of God lived among Babylon's wise men. People like Daniel. The guy who was thrown into a lion's den, and then Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego, the three guys who were thrown into a fiery furnace. Maybe, just, just maybe these guys, God's men, shared with the Babylonian wise men the writings of Moses and the prophets. And that's significant because the writings of, the, of Moses and the prophets are continually pointing to the coming Messiah. I would like to think that's what happened because that's how God usually works in our lives. Kind of on the down low, behind the scenes, in the course of everyday events, using everyday people to get his will done on earth Ordinary days, ordinary ways that we don't always see or know how God is working. Just like we don't know what kind of wise men these guys are. Are they court magicians or astronomers or princes? And by the way, we don't know how many of them there are. Now, I know we sing the song, We Three Kings of Orient Are. But Matthew doesn't tell us that there are three kings. He only tells us that there are three gifts. It was probably a rather large group of wise men because, let's be honest, three guys riding in a town on camels probably wouldn't cause much of a stir in Jerusalem, but a group of 20 or 30 or 50 would. And so while we're at it, blowing up all our Christmas traditions this morning, how many of you have a nativity scene set up at home right now? Come on, don't be bashful. Raise your hands. You have a nativity scene set up at home. How many of you have a wise man as a part of that nativity scene? All right, so here's your assignment. You need to go home today and move those three wise men all the way across the room. Okay? So that when people come and visit you later today, friends and family, they can ask, well, why aren't the wise men there at the manger? Because they weren't at the manger. They aren't worshiping Jesus on that first Christmas night with the shepherds. And we know that because look at what verse 1 says here. The wise men set out to find Jesus after Jesus was born in Bethlehem, not when he was born in Bethlehem. Now, we don't know much about when the wise men actually arrive. 
And we also don't know much about the star that brought them to Jesus. Was it a conjunction of Jupiter and Saturn, as many astronomers have suggested? Was it an extra bright star that God dropped into the heavens for just this moment? You know, maybe the wise men knew the Old Testament prophecy of Numbers 24, verse 17, which says, A star will come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. Maybe they knew from Daniel and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego that God had promised to send a king. You know, there's so much here that Matthew doesn't tell us. If Matthew had been a reporter, his editor would have fired him on the spot. Because he leaves us hanging on so many points here. But that's because he's focused on one main point. That the wise men are being led by God himself to Bethlehem to worship the one who's been born king of the Jews. And when Herod hears that, he isn't just surprised, he's troubled. The Greek word here actually means agitated. In other words, he's all shook up, like some of you kids are this morning because your parents are making you wait until after the service to open your presents. But Herod isn't the only one troubled. Notice that all Jerusalem is troubled with him. Because the Jews had been waiting for this news. And they're intrigued by this news. That there is one who has been born king of the Jews. But Herod isn't intrigued by it. He's terrified by it. He sees the handwriting on the wall. And so he's got to get to the bottom of this. But ironically, the king of the Jews, at least the one who calls himself the king of the Jews, doesn't know what the Jewish Old Testament promised about the Messiah. And so Herod calls an emergency staff meeting with the chief priests and with the scribes because they know what God had promised way back in Micah chapter 5, verse 2. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, you who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you, Bethlehem, shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel. And get this, who will shepherd my people Israel. Now, if you were to go back to Micah chapter 5, verse 2, you wouldn't see that last phrase there. The chief priests and the scribes kind of add that in. You ever wonder why? Well, I think these words that they share with Herod hit him like a ton of bricks because he had never enjoyed this kind of relationship as a shepherd with the people of Israel. He had ruled Israel by fear and force. But Jesus, the true king of Israel, will rule his people with love and grace. Not as a narcissistic politician, but as the good shepherd, loving his sheep and being loved by his sheep. And that's why we'd expect the next verse to read that the chief priests and the scribes pack up their stuff and they hightail it over to Bethlehem to worship Jesus. But that's not what it says Because that's not what happens. The religious establishment knows all the Old Testament promises about Jesus. They know all the signs that point to Jesus. But they're indifferent to Jesus. Listen, listen, listen. It's possible to know know the truth intellectually. To know the Bible academically. But to not know Jesus personally. And that kind of indifference 
isn't just infinitely dangerous. It can be eternally deadly because death is what Herod has in mind when he secretly brings the wise men back into the palace. And this time he wants to know what time the star appeared. Why? Well, the answer is down in verse 16 when he slaughters all the male babies in Bethlehem under the age of two. He's doing the math. He's calculating. He's scheming to protect his throne at all costs. And so when he sends the wise men back to Bethlehem, he demands that they return to him and tell him where to find the child so that he can worship too. But we know the truth, don't we? We know that Herod pretends worship but intends murder It's what he had done with his own family. So taking the life of baby Jesus or countless nameless, faceless baby boys will be no big deal. But at this moment in the story, notice that these wise men are not privy to Herod's plan. So they agree to Herod's request. And as they begin to make that four or five mile trek to Bethlehem, the same star that brought them to Jerusalem from their homeland goes before them. Literally, it leads them step by step. It's the same way God led his people back in the Exodus, step by step with a pillar of cloud and a pillar of fire. In fact, it's the same way God leads us today, step by step, guiding us in the moment while we are already following his leading. Remember Psalm 119, 105. Your word is a what? Your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. That's a promise to those who are in the process of following. That's those who are in the process of moving. It's not those, a promise to those who are stationary. And that's why Proverbs 16, verse 9 says that God directs our steps present tense. You know, so often we want God to lead us and guide us like Google Maps does. Or we can see the entire trip ahead of time. Each step, each turn, each detour. But you know, that isn't the way God leads. He leads us in the moment, step by step, just as he does with these wise men when he causes the star to come to rest right over the place where Jesus is. So it isn't luck and it isn't fate that brings the wise men to Jesus. It's God. He doesn't just open their eyes to the birth of Jesus. He brings them and guides them and leads them all the way to Jesus. And if you're a believer in Jesus, then God has done the same with you. In sovereign grace, he has opened your eyes to Jesus and brought you to him. That's my story. I've already told you that I grew up in a pastor's home. And so from the time I can remember, on Sunday, every Sunday, I was in church listening to my dad preach God's Word. And after a few years of sitting where you're sitting this morning, in the living room of our home in Clear Lake, Iowa, on January 1st, 1976, 
while Dad, the preacher, was still in bed, <laughs> Mom and I were out in the living room watching the Macy's. Isn't the Macy's New Year's Day parade or is that the Macy's Christmas parade or Thanksgiving parade? Anyway, we were watching a parade. And I turned to my mom and I said, Mom, how can I be saved from my sins? I was young, but I was still a sinner. I know you find that hard to believe, knowing me, but it's true. And so that morning, January 1, 1976, as as much as a young boy could, I cried out to God in faith and, and pleaded with him to save me because I was believing on Jesus and repenting of my sins. That's my story. Your story will be different from mine, and all our stories will be different from the story of these wise men, but the reason and the way we came to Jesus is the same. We came because God has brought us to him. And the wise men get that, and so when they see the star, they rejoice exceedingly with great joy. In the Greek, it's something like this, that they rejoiced joyfully with super joy massively. In other words, Matthew is running out of words to describe the greatness of their joy. Now, there are very few things that get to me like a newborn baby. How many of you remember back to the 90s? Now, I know that's a long time ago, but back to the 90s and early 2000s, and there was a show on television that was called A Baby Story. Anybody remember that? Okay, so uh, um, we used to record those and, and watch those, and, and I got to the point where I had to stop because every time we watched an episode of A Baby Story, I would just begin weeping uncontrollably. We were running out of Kleenex. I mean, it was just, it was crazy. Um, um, I have been in the delivery room um, with Joanna for the birth for the births of our five children. Now, let me just say to this, um, those didn't happen all at once, okay? And, and Joanna is thankful for that. But I, I, every time, all five of our kids, when they were born, it was just like somebody turned on the faucet in my eyeballs. I just wept. There's nothing like the joy of new life. And that's why we say, or at least in the old days, we'd refer to a baby as a bundle of what? A bundle of joy. I mean, when Joanna and I have the privilege of visiting a newborn in the hospital, and we walk into the room and we see mom and dad holding their newborn, mom and dad have this indescribable, uncontainable joy. And then we sit them down and we say to them, listen, you need to understand what your child's going to be like when they turn two. Okay, we, we don't really do that, okay? But if we did, even if we did, there would be nothing that could dampen Mom and dad's joy. That's these wise men because the baby they're about to meet isn't just any baby. This is the one and only Messiah, the King of Kings, the promised one, the Savior of the world. And Psalm 16 verse 11 says that he is the one in whose presence there is fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore. And that's why when the wise men come into the house and see Jesus, Their joy explodes into spontaneous, instantaneous, falling to their knees, worship of Jesus. 
And Matthew wants us to catch here the connection between joy and worship because worship is all about joy. Where you go for joy is what you'll worship. And where your worship is, that's where your joy will be. And for believers in Jesus, the fact that Jesus is our joy is what drives our worship. There is, listen, there is no worship without joy. That's why the wise men here don't just fall down before Jesus. They give gifts to Jesus. Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. But it really isn't about what the gifts are. It's about what the gifts say. They tell us that joyful worship is accompanied by joyful sacrifice because these aren't gifts that you could pick up at the Bethlehem dollar store. These are costly gifts. These are gifts fit for a king. These are treasures the wise men have brought with them the entire way from their homeland. And that tells us something about the infinite worth of Jesus and the joy that we find in him far exceeds the joy we'll ever find in anything else. Even gold and frankincense and myrrh. The question is, do we believe that? Do we believe that the joy we find in Jesus is greater, infinitely greater than the joy anything else can provide? Because God isn't done with these wise men yet. He doesn't just get them safely to Jesus. He gets them safely back home from Jesus. He warns them in a dream not to return to Herod because if they do... They're dead men. And even though they are oblivious to Herod's wicked plan, God isn't. He's working in all things and working out all things, working for the good of his people, working for the joy of his people, even when we don't see it like these wise men. And that's why this morning we need to grasp the significance of all this. Because this isn't just a cool story about a star and wise men and a psychotically paranoid king. This is the story of Jesus. The story of joy. And in this story we are challenged in two ways. Number one. To let the joy of Jesus invade our life. Listen, we learn from this scene in Matthew's gospel that it's written to Jews, but highlights the first worshipers as Gentiles. We learn here that joy is available to all kinds of people in all kinds of places because Jesus is the king of the nations. He's different than any other king. He isn't the king of a country or even a continent. God doesn't say here, Israel, you can have your Messiah and the other nations can have their Messiah. No, Jesus is the king of all. And he's the king for all. From shepherds to wise men, from cultural bottom dwellers to the cultural elites, not just the Jew, but the Gentile. I mean, the Jewish insiders missed it. The Gentile outsiders got it. 
because God revealed it to them and brought the outsiders in, those who were far away, he brought near. And maybe that's what you need to hear. Maybe you really don't know why you're here this morning other than it's Christmas and going to church on Christmas is what people do. You feel like such an outsider, like, like there's no way I could ever be a Jesus follower with my background and who I've been and, and what I've done. I didn't grow up Christian. And so culturally, I just don't feel like I fit in. If that's you this morning, then this story of the wise men is for you because you are where they were. In fact, if you look around this morning, at every Jesus follower in this room, every one of us at one time was where you are and where these wise men were on the outside looking in. But then like with these wise men, God brought us to Jesus. And I say to you this morning, he'll do the same for you. Because no one is beyond the reaches of our God's amazing grace. Or maybe you're more like the chief priests and scribes and the citizens of Jerusalem in this story. You've grown up knowing the Bible. You've grown up hearing about the Messiah. But knowing about the Messiah doesn't make you a follower of or a believer in the Messiah. Just like these religious leaders knowing where the Messiah would be born doesn't make them a Messiah follower or worshiper. So if you've grown up around Jesus, but haven't yet become a worshiper of Jesus or a believer in Jesus, or if today is the first time you've ever heard about Jesus, the question for all of us in this room is the same. Will you come to him and bow before him, worshiping him and trusting in him? That's the message of Christmas. That's the question of Christmas. John 3.16 says that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, so that whoever believes in Him will not perish but have eternal life. God gave His Son. He sends His Son to give His Son as a sacrifice, not in a cradle, but on a cross to bear our sins and to pay for them in full, answering a holy God's wrath against our sins so that we could be justified, so that we could be redeemed, so that we could be saved, so that we could escape the wrath that is certainly to come. Will you trust in Jesus, repenting of your sins and embracing him as your Lord and Savior and King. Will you worship Him? That's the question of Christmas. Has the joy of Jesus invaded your life through your faith in Jesus? You can trust Him today. You can come to him, the one who says, come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. I will take you. I will receive you. I will welcome you with open arms. And what he did on the cross proves he will.
will you? Because when you trust in Jesus, his joy will invade your life. And then the everyday challenge becomes to, secondly, to let the joy of Jesus saturate your life. So can I ask you this morning, how full is your joy? Christian, how full is your joy? You say, well, it depends on and what I find under the tree and unwrap this morning after I go home. No, 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 no. How full is your joy in Jesus? The gift, the greatest gift, is what you already have and will have forever. And so listen, Christians should be the most joyful people on the face of the earth. And that's why one of the followers of Jesus, one of the men who dies for his faith in Jesus, the Apostle Peter, writes in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 8, Though you have not seen Jesus, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him, and you rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, filled with wow. Has Jesus lost his wowness? With you? You see, joy that is inexpressible and filled with wow is what Christians do. We rejoice because we love this king. We rejoice because we believe in this king. And like these wise men, our joy inspires our worship of Jesus. So rejoice exceedingly with great, massive, super joy over this king. Be very, very, very glad about this king. And that ought to radically affect how we sing in this room. Listen, Hoffman Estates should be able to hear us on Sunday mornings. And so should Elgin and St. Louis. Because our King is worthy. So let that joy out when we're singing together. Let that joy out when we're listening to God's Word together. Let that joy out when we give to God's work together. And when we're out in the lobby fellowshipping together. Can I ask, when, when, when guests walk into this building... Do they see and hear our joy? Do they think to themselves, man, these are the most joyful people in the world. I want in on the Jesus they have. But you know, the joy of Jesus isn't limited to our time together on Sundays. It's intended to saturate our lives all week long, wherever we are, whatever we're doing, whatever we're facing, because the joy of Jesus is strong. It endures through hard times and difficult circumstances, just like it did for these wise men on their probably 800-mile trek to Bethlehem. Our joy is not limited by what's happening to us, because the joy-producing grace of Jesus is always working in us. And so let's give our lives 
to joy by perpetually offering our lives to Jesus. All our plans, all our hopes, all our dreams, everything we have, everything we are, lay it all before your King as an offering of joy. He died on the cross and has risen from the grave to saturate your life with joy. And that's why the, the angel says to the shepherds that first Christmas night, behold, I bring you news, uh, good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. So let's join with heaven and rejoice in our King. And today and every day will be a truly merry and joyful Christmas. Amen. Father, help us. Work in us, work on us. Give us joy as you have promised and as you have done in Jesus. And may that joy be a pervasive joy, not only working in us, but working through us to those in our world. May they see the joy. May they hear the joy. And may, by your grace, they come to know that joy. Jesus is joy. Thank you. In his name, amen.